All right, this morning our word comes to us from James 5, chapters, or verses 13 through 18. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. This is the word of the Lord. Well, it's great to be with you all. Uh, as I said earlier, my name's Cameron. And we are continuing, I guess this is week three, of a series we've been in, One Anothering, Shape of Life Together in the Family of God, where we are, um, we are considering uh, the various one another commands of the New Testament. There's this about 60, depending on how you count, commands that have these Greek, uh, these Greek verbs, one another, or not verbs, uh, what is it, is it a noun? One another. Whatever the part of, I don't forget part of speech. It's been a long time. Definitely not a verb, though. Um, the actions are the verbs, but the one another phrase, what we do to each other, it's, it's like this picture of like the tendrils of a network of relationships in a church. How is it supposed to function? And so there's these 60 commands that put skin on that, and we think that the central command among all of those is the command to love one another. And you've probably heard that before. Christians, yes, are supposed to love one another. We're supposed to love our neighbors. We're even supposed to love our enemies. But these are specifically directed at that one another, the people who make up the family of God. So we're to love one another. Well, what does that look like if you really get down into the practical, you know, detail of life? We think the rest of these commands put skin on it, put flesh on it, bring it into the real world. And so we're spending a number of weeks looking at, for the most part, I think two of these each week, because a lot of them are uh, grouped together or kind of cover overlapping ideas. And you probably can guess what we're talking about this morning based on uh, the scripture that Cassidy read for us. Uh, There's two commands in this verse here in verse 16, James chapter 5, to confess your sins to one another and to pray for one another. And I'm guessing with, you know, when I mentioned the the command to confess your sins to one another, a lot of people just kind of tightened up when I said that. A lot of people just kind of went like, ooh, I don't know if I like that one. You know, last week, as challenging as those commands were to forgive one another, to, to bear with one another, uh, I think we all kind of instinctively, yeah, that's right, that's good. The world would be a better place. I would love for people to do that for me. I'd love to grow and to be able to do that for other people. But when we start talking about confessing sins, it's usually like, I'm not real. That's got to be for someone else, not for me. And I think confession, we're going to get there, we're going to kind of unpack it uh, as, as we get into the sermon, but confession can also be something that we just think as Protestants, like, ooh, that is, that's more of like a Catholic thing, right? We don't, we don't, there's no place for that in our theology. Um, and yet here we are with a very clear command that we cannot wave away that seems to have some, some pretty significant importance uh, in this book and across the New Testament as a whole. So... Um, Confession and prayer are the two commands we're considering today. Before we go any further, let's pray one more time. Lord, we do need your help. 
It's not, I don't just say that, Lord, uh, as a formality. I am aware, Lord, of how inadequate my understanding is, how limited my perspective is, uh, how shallow my gifts are, Lord. And there's a great grace in knowing that at the end of the day, none of those things really matter. Uh, we need you, and you can move, you can act this morning. Help us to understand your word, Lord. Whatever you intended for people in 2023 to take away from these timeless truths, Lord, we, we want to take them away. We want to live into them. And we need your help for that. Uh, make us the kind of church, Lord, who can be obedient in this, Lord, that we would be a people who confess to one another and pray for one another, Lord. And that these wouldn't be burdensome, burdensome ideas, but by the end of this time, Lord, we might, we might really understand them as exciting opportunities for some amazing things you might want to do in our midst. So help us. Help us, Lord. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the, the, the setup to get to verse 16 um, is all about prayer. So James is kind of a collection. James is believed to be written by the half-brother of Jesus, an early you know, leader in the Jerusalem church, key, uh, key early Christian leader. And it's kind of a collection, almost like, reads almost like wisdom literature, just like these kind of sections of just kind of wisdom, Christian wisdom on various topics, especially what it means to live life together in community. So he gets to this, and there's the, the chief idea here is about prayer. So I'll read this one more time. Is anyone suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise, which is also a type of prayer. Did you know that when we sing, Luke said this a couple weeks ago, it's like, it's like praying twice. Like, pray, like the songs we sing are meant to be melody, like prayer set to melody. That's why we take the time. It's, it teaches us, but it also helps us to express ourselves through this music to our God. So he says, you're, you're cheerful about anything? Sing praise. That's another way of saying pray through song, through singing. Is anyone sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, he'll be forgiven. And then we get to 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The first thing I just want to highlight here is that James gives us a very, very, very New Testament idea, central idea, that's to pray without ceasing. This is a comprehensive call to prayer. And that is fitting as prayer has basically been understood as the most foundational spiritual discipline or spiritual practice of the people of God since the beginning. Now, many believers before us, and even in our world today, are either illiterate or have no access to the scriptures in their language. Did you know that? Like, it's not a given that you will have a Bible that you can read and that you can cherish. It's a whole other question of whether we do read it and do study it and do cherish it. But there are plenty of people, and there have been since the beginning of the church, for whom that just wasn't really a live option. Uh, but they could still be Christians. They could still be Christians. They could still interact with the Scriptures through a number of ways, and they certainly could pray. Um, and today, they can and do pray. Here, James is drawing out an idea that we find across the New Testament, which is Christians should pray a lot. You go to the words of Jesus. In Matthew 6, 5, Jesus says, And when you pray, just assuming to his hearers, you're going to be praying. Pray like this. And he gives, uh, he gives instruction. Or in Luke, Luke 6, 12, he models it for us. And this is not the only instance of this. In those days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. That's the example of Jesus. 
Or think of Paul again in Ephesians 6.18, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. Or in Colossians 4.2, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Or again in 1 Thessalonians 5.16, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. I could go on, but I don't think I need to. Pray all the time, whatever your circumstances. And he talks specifically about prayer in several dimensions. So it's in all kinds of circumstances. He gives us a, a, a few things. Suffering, when life gets hard, when you are suffering, and that could be in any realm, but suffering, when that comes, pray. Pray for help. Pray for relief. Pray to be you know, spiritually attuned to, to how he might shape you through that. There are all kinds of ways you can pray in suffering. But even in cheerfulness, when you're excited, when you're joyful, when things are going well, don't allow yourself to think for even a second that that's disconnected from what God is up to in your life as well. As we've spent all summer talking about, chase those gifts up to the gift giver. Thank him, praise him, acknowledge him in those good seasons. When you're sick, when you're sick, and he gives a, an extended example here of what to do when you're sick, but of course when you're sick, pray. Whatever your needs might be, pray. And when there's sin, when you're struggling with sin, mired in sin, stuck in sin, we pray. And that's just a sample of the kinds of circumstances. But then he talks about more configurations. So he, the, it starts out and you think he's just talking about just pray individually. And I think he probably is. Pray individually. When these things are happening, just you as an individual pray, come to the Lord. But then he talks about praying with church leadership. He says, reach out to the elders of the church. And I should probably just say a couple of things here on this point. First, um, you should feel free to reach out to the pastors and elders of your church for prayer. Like, this is a significant part of our role and service to you here. And I want to be very clear that it's not because my prayers or anyone else's prayers are more valuable. Like, look, don't, don't assume that here. It's not because our prayers are more special or that God is at, in any way more attentive to our prayers. I think it's mainly just because he wants one of the main marks of servant leadership in the church to be prayer on behalf of our community, which ironically is a reminder that the healing power rests in God, not in the elders or in any other group of leaders. This command calls the relationship between the elders or leaders and the congregation back to the most important thing, which is the work of the Spirit of God in our midst. Call to, to pray with the elders is not to say like their prayers are more important, but that all of this is meant to be just bathed in prayer. The, the most important work in some ways is prayer. I probably should also address, like, what's going on with this anointing with oil thing here? Because most of us read that and are kind of like, what's going on? <laughs> what's going on? Louise has questions. Or you don't have questions. You're just stoked about it. So anointing with oil was a common way of drawing attention to the presence of God with or on someone across the Old and New Testaments. It kind of brought a physical awareness of something that was happening spiritually. Um, so I, I should also say that while oil, um, like, what am I trying to say? It did have some medicinal uses. Um, so, like, there were some medicinal applications of oil, but this is not just, like, superstition or something like that. Oil is given, listen, this is the important part, in the name of the Lord. 
If oil was just meant to like sort of magically do something for the people, there'd be no need for this. Like the oil's the thing. But the point is that you anoint with oil in the name of the Lord, which declares, again, where the real power lies. It's in God's name. It's in the name of Jesus, the Lord. Not in the oil itself, but the Lord to whom we pray. So you can think of this as kind of a, it's a, it's a physical representation and kind of a, um, yeah, an image of what is happening spiritually when you pray. It's a way of bringing like focused, intense concentration to your prayer. Um, this is a practice I've done with people on occasion, in fact. And I don't, I, I don't think we should view it as something weird or strange or superstitious. Um, so anyway, all that to say, that's kind of very briefly what's going on with the anoint them with oil here. And uh, back to the larger point. If anyone, if I ever hear anyone in this church say, like, um, well, you know, I could maybe use some prayer for this thing, but I know the pastor's busy. Like, please, please don't ever say that. Like, that's, that's my job. Like, that's a, a part, a significant part of my job. That's a significant part of the elder's role here at the church. Uh, anyone who's in leadership at this church should be ready and willing to pray with and for uh, the people of this congregation. And on the flip side of that is don't be hesitant to reach out. Don't assume that people are too busy for this. If we become too busy for this, it's, 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 an, it's a, a picture of the deep mismatch of priorities that have happened here and something would need to be fixed. So pray alone, pray with the church leadership, and finally pray with one another. Again, that Greek term, all alone. Every believer in the church should be striving to become increasingly comfortable with praying for others and being prayed for by others. The whole church should be marked by mutuality in prayer. And maybe before we move on from this point, one other thing we have to say, uh, which is kind of maybe the most controversial or difficult thing in this passage, which is the, the relationship between sin and sickness that James is talking about here. So this passage does seem, I mean, it's kind of, the wording is a little bit vague, but the passage does seem to indicate, most scholars agree, that there's a possibility that certain illnesses can be the result of sin. And I don't want to spend a ton of time on this except to say the Bible does consistently depict this as a possibility, but hear me very clearly, but never as a certainty. In John 9, Jesus challenged people who assumed that a man born blind was the result of someone's sin. They, there was a whole bunch of people just assumed if something happens to your health, something goes wrong for you, this must just, it's almost like a karmic idea. You must have done something really bad for God to do this to you. And Jesus just very clearly rejects this idea. It does not have to be, and often is not, the result of sin that someone deals with, a sickness or disease or injury. Sickness, disease, and injury are just part of, of our natural fallen world, of course. And it has no necessary or inherent connection to anyone's sin today. However, there is at least the possibility that sometimes an illness can be connected to an unrepentant sin. And as unmodern, I know I, I, that those words come out of my mouth and I'm like, do I really think that? Do I really believe that? As unmodern as that sounds to all of us, we just have to take the scriptures at their word. That's what it declares. Sometimes this is the case. And we also recognize, we also recognize that modern medicine um, is, is a gift of common grace. 
and that, and that we should employ it to help when people are sick as well. So sometimes these ideas get translated like, look, everything, every sickness is just a matter of, you know, spiritual stuff. And if you even go to a doctor, it's an indication that you don't, you know, really trust God or whatever. And uh, we should reject that as well. Gosh, the Apostle Paul, you know, gives types of medicine as, as a recommendation from time to time as well. So um, all that to say, it's complicated, but... Um, I think, I think the temptation in hearing this is to think, like, oh my gosh, anything, if I ever am sick or something's going wrong with me physically, that there's some sort of spiritual root to that, and it is not necessarily the case. Okay, I think all my sidebars are done for this morning, <laughs> but this passage requires a lot of them. So all of this is preparation for the two central commands we're considering. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another, and we'll consider them one at a time. So first, confess your sins to one another. Verse 16a. First, we do have to talk for a second about what is the role of confession for New Testament, New Covenant believers in Jesus. And what we fir- the first thing we have to note is that like, following Jesus' establishment of the New Covenant, like, how do you do that? He was the once-for-all atoning sacrifice for sin. And as a result of that, confession can play a really misunderstood role in that new spiritual economy. So unlike the Old Testament people of God, we no longer practice temple sacrifices. Have you noticed that? (laughs) We don't don't have a bloody altar over here where we're sacrificing lambs or something. Um, And that's not because we're unfaithful to Scripture, but because we're faithful to it. Jesus was the once-for-all sacrifice. Um, We are no longer... Therefore, we are also no longer required to confess to the temple priests, which went along with the sacrifices. Contrary to the Roman Catholic view, we do not believe in a sacrament of penance that requires us to confess sins um, to a vocational priest to be fully absolved by God. Nevertheless, we do believe confession plays an important role in our relationship with Christ. So listen to this. The book of Acts tells us, When the crowd heard the gospel on the day of Pentecost, they were moved to the core and asked what to do. And Peter said, repent, repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And anytime you hear repent, this this involves an acknowledgement of sin. Repentance is, is, you have to acknowledge your sin, and it's the flip side of faith, flip side of the coin. But confession is also supposed to be not only the init- an initial way we come to Jesus, but also um, an ongoing habit of every believer. And our f- let me make, make this very clear. Our first and primary act of confession is just to God himself. It's to God himself. Um, though all sin is heartbreaking and discouraging, though, confession, hear this, confession is not meant to be discouraging. That's where the heart of this is going to go. Confession is not this sad thing. I mean, I mean, it is sad. You, you, you're right to grieve over your sin, and you're right to be burdened by it. But the act of confession is actually what brings liberation to you. Um, confession isn't meant ultimately to discourage. Listen to this. This is David. Yes, this is Old Testament. But in Psalm 32, he's describing the beautiful grace that meets the believer when he or she acknowledges our sin before God. He says, sin bottled up inside causes us to, in his words, waste away to groan or to dry up. So when he held his sin inside, it was just like this withering that was happening inside. 
But when he, when he confesses, it brings like the experience of forgiveness into his life. The experience of forgiveness comes and it lightens every load of guilt. Read Psalm 32. It's amazing. Or in the New Testament, John echoed this idea when he wrote, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so I think the idea here is that by virtue of what Jesus has done on the cross, every believer knows they're forgiven. So, this is for you and this is for me. If you're a believer in Christ, you have been, he was the once for all sacrifice. Whatever you did yesterday, today, or even tomorrow has been covered by the grace of Jesus. Please understand that. Please understand that. Once for all. But ongoing confession to God brings you the relational experience of God's forgiving love. That's the point. You don't have to confess to him tomorrow because, oh, if I don't confess, then I'm probably not forgiven. No, you rest secure in the forgiveness he's already attained. But you get to come to him as you actually are, confess to him, and see that he still loves you on the other side of that. That's the point. You get to bring it to him, and, he, and you get to, in prayer, receive from him, like, as far as east is from west, so I've separated my, you from your sin. You get to experience that. We should note, because you have to go back and forth on these things, we should also note, experiencing God's grace is not meant to make us complacent. Paul talks about that directly in Romans 6. Like, oh, maybe I should just sin more so that then I can confess more and, you know, experience more grace. No, of course not. But his grace fuels our discipleship and it fuels our forgiveness of others. So that's confession for New Testament Christians, I think. But what about this confession to one another thing? Because that's where Paul's going. So that's confession in general. But why, okay, that's how I, you know, do confession with God and the spiritual benefit of it, so, so on and so forth. Why do I need to confess to Luke? Why would I need to do that? Luke, come up here. Let's do a little, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, you confess to me in front of all these people. No, confession even, listen to this. Even under the cross of Christ, it is not meant to be exclusively between us and God. There has always been something incredibly powerful found in an individual confessing to another person. So when a person, and in, in the Old Testament, say, call it a priest or a fellow believer in the New Covenant, hears your sin, when a person, a real person, hears your sin, knows that you're in Christ, and declares the truth of God's forgiveness over you, Friends, that is powerful. That is a freeing experience. Confession seems embarrassing, because it often is. But that's why it's so necessary. It drives the truths of the gospel into our hearts experientially. That doesn't mean you confess all the time with everyone. But in general, Christians should find trusted, appropriate people that we can be we can boldly, humbly, truthfully confess our sins to. There is incredible blessing and tangible experiencing of grace to be found there. So, I think a lot of scholars are right to point out, probably the first like, audience for confession Paul has in mind here 
in, here in James is people that you have sinned against. Probably the first, like, the, like the heart of this command is if you have sinned against someone, the Spirit of God ought to be growing the kind of humility into you that once you realize it, once you've cooled down, you can go to that person and say, hey, I confess I have sinned against you. And that takes us right back to last week and the call to forgive one another and so on and so forth. But I think it goes even beyond that. So when, must you, when do you have a real spiritual obligation to confess to another person? I think if you've wronged them, if you've wronged them, you should do it. But when else might you confess? Here's what I'd say. Anytime that you need an additional unburdening from your sin. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it in Life Together, um, which is a wonderful, incredible book on community, by the way. We have it over there at the little bookstore. Uh, my page is stuck together. <clears throat> okay. Bonhoeffer says, does this mean that confession to a brother is a divine law? No. Confession, and he means confession like in all circumstances, is not a law, but it's an offer of divine help for the sinner. It's an offer of divine help for the sinner. That's giving confession. But what about receiving confession? So that's the one another piece. This Im- implies some people will be confessing, some people will be receiving that confession from other people. The New Testament declares every believer is indwelt with the Spirit of God and the entire church is a royal priesthood. And for these reasons, every Christian is capable of receiving the confessions of their brothers and sisters in Christ. And like, like, to listen to the privilege of this. I don't know if you ever thought of this as a privilege. But in these holy moments, someone confesses their sin to you. You get the honor of representing the love and mercy and grace that Jesus has poured out on our believing friends by speaking it back to them. That's what you get to do. When we receive the confessions of others, we get to we get, take a moment to mourn the sin with them, but then move into the privilege and joy of telling them that God has completely, absolutely, unequivocally forgiven them through Jesus. Again, you're not the, you're not the, the primary spiritual forgiver here, You're the one who points to the Jesus who forgives and says, may I remind you, he did this for you. You are free, friend. You are free. The psalmist had it right when he declared, as far as the east is from west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. So there is a unique power in confessing our sins, yes, even to people, and there is a unique privilege and joy of getting to receive someone's confession and declare the grace of Jesus back to them. And there's a cost to not doing these things. I want to declare that. So, you know, the cost of avoiding confessing, or maybe it may be costs, some of these are costs, some of these are just indicators of something that's going on inside, but maybe I'd say first, a lack of confession in a community might indicate that we don't take sin seriously. It might mean, well, what do I have to confess for? I don't, you know, there's... Pretty good person, you know, whatever. It might indicate that we've somewhere along the line let like our, un- our understanding of the weight and gravity of sin just sort of fall to the wayside. Or on the flip side, it might be an indicator that we don't take the grace of God seriously. Because if we take sin seriously but we don't remember grace, we're like, man, I don't think I can acknowledge any of this because it's too, like, maybe they'll hate me. Maybe they'll kick me out of here. 
Maybe they won't want anything to do with me. Maybe I will be deemed like too far gone. And so it's an indication we don't really understand and value grace enough. Um, Gerald Sitzer, uh, he has this wonderful book I've been reading alongside preparing these messages called Love One Another that's about, uh, I didn't know this book existed when I was mapping out this series, but uh, it's basically the series. He takes love one another and then various of the mutuality commands, and he, ha- he has br- brilliant stuff to say in every chapter so far. But one of the things he said was, the mutuality command of confession and prayer addresses the debilitating effect of sin in human life, whether it be our own or someone else's. Confession exposes us for the sinners we are and opens us to God's grace. Confession makes the church a community for sinners instead of pious saints. It gives us the freedom to be vulnerable and honest rather than pretentious and hypocritical. So, it might be, if we don't do it, it might be an indicator we don't really think sin is serious or that we don't really think the grace of God is real. Second, if we don't confess, we lose real intimacy as we really are with people. This is Bonhoeffer again. He says, The final breakthrough at fellowship does not occur because, though they have fellowship with one another as believers and as de- devout people, they do not have the fellowship as the undevout, as sinners. The pious fellowship, and he, by that he means just, you know, we're all just pretending, we got it all together, we don't really deal with sin, you know, we're all pretty mature and whatever. The pious fellowship, it permits no one to be a sinner. So everyone must conceal, him, conceal his sin from himself and from the fellowship. We dare not be sinners. Many Christians are unthinkably horrified when a real sinner is suddenly discovered among the righteous. So we remain alone with our sin, living in lies and hypocrisy. But the fact is that we are sinners. We are sinners. When we don't acknowledge it, we lose the ability to actually have real intimacy with one another. We lose the opportunity to actually, like, like, see that the people next to you will love you through that. They will care for you through that. They might help you through that. That you, as you actually, really, genuinely are, not the pretend version of you, not the face, you know, not the Snapchat filter version of you or whatever, the real version of you is loved and cared for and wanted in this community. Yeah. Maybe one, a third thing to say is when we, a cost of avoiding confession is that we actually, again, just tie this all together, we lose opportunities to experience, experience the love and grace of God as we genuinely are. So I've already hinted, I've already said that, but um, confession is a gift to us from God, not to save us. Hope that's, hope that, I don't want anything to be more clear than that. Confession to one another does not save us but it is a means by which we actually get to experience in flesh and blood ways through our brothers and sisters that he actually does love us. He actually is gracious toward us. And the body of Christ gets to be a vehicle for that message. And it's beautiful when that happens. Now, I should probably say, this can be abused. The call to confess can be an opportunity. People have. Tragic. You probably can think of stories of where uh, individuals or pastors or whoever has used this command, confess, to sort of gain like personal leverage over people. Share all your dirt with me so that I can then manipulate you with it. 
I don't want to spend a ton of time on this, but just to say, like, that is, that is a, a horrific spiritual abuse of, of some of the worst kind. Um, I know there are people in our church, because I've talked to you, who have been in environments like that where confession and sharing sin has been weaponized. It's been a means of control. And I just want to say my heart breaks for you. And geez, if I've ever unwittingly done that, tell me. Um, or t- if someone else has, tell them. And like, that is not okay. This doesn't give carte blanche to, you know, to any and every use of that, that kind of confession. Hey. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, I, 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 we, could, we could caveat this a dozen of ways, but know that there are ways this can be abused, as every you know, good gospel truth can be. Uh, and we want to fight tenaciously to not be that kind of community. Um, and there will be temptations to be. We all have to be, um, again, wise in who we share with. And whenever you are receiving confession from someone, no, you are, you are being privileged with something precious. That if you don't handle that well, and in a gospel way, could, could deeply, deeply harm someone. Um, so let that, let that wait fall on you. Okay. Confess to one another. Not to be saved, but to be reminded and encouraged in the salvation that Jesus has already bought for you through the cross. And the second command is to pray for one another. And that these are related, right? I think, I think the idea as well is that if someone confesses, you pray for them. You, you, you pray for that sin. You lift them up to the Lord. It says, pray for one another that you may be healed. And we spent a lot of time talking about prayer earlier, so I'll just draw a couple of brief things here in this part. But um, do you understand? I mean, I think sometimes we hear the command to pray. We're like, yeah, that's a discipline. I know it's important. I don't really do it as often as I probably should. Um, and so you just kind of are like, oh, yeah, and kind of feel guilty and ashamed when prayer comes up. Um, and some of that is, I think, because we don't really understand what prayer is. And specifically thinking about prayer for our brothers and sisters in the church. Like, do you recognize that prayer is an opportunity to lovingly carry a brother or sister and their story and their sins and their needs and their pains and their joys into the presence of God? That's all it is. It's an acknowledgement of God's most fundamental role in all of this. It's to say, like, we, by virtue of being saved by Jesus, we have access to the throne room of God. We get to boldly come before him and share what we need. And when someone is struggling, I get to just be someone who puts an arm around them and says, let me take you to the king. Let me take you to the one who can help. When you think of it in those terms, it it suddenly becomes such such a more exciting prospect to pray for someone. It's not just this thing where you're, you know, your words are kind of bouncing off the wall, but if you can really come to believe, like, what the Scriptures promise about our access to the Father through Jesus and the power of prayer, like, why would we not do this? Why would we not be overjoyed and excited to do this? And I should probably say as well, prayer is always, in every circumstance, as we've already said, the right response. But prayer does not preclude doing things to help people <laughs> either, right? 
Because sometimes you see this on social media a lot whenever there's a, a mass tragedy, which there always is. Uh, there's always one around the corner, horrifically. Um, you know, if people post on social media like, oh, you know, we're going to pray, there can be kind of a, a cynical like, oh, if you really cared, then you would, you know, donate to this organization or wh whatever, the, whatever the thing may be. And there's something in there. You know, there can be, we can hide behind piety a little bit like, oh, I just pray and I don't actually ever do anything for anyone. Fair enough. But don't, don't let that distort the idea that prayer is incredibly valuable. Prayer is, prayer is incredibly powerful. And to fervently pray does not mean that you can't also serve and help. We're going to talk about the commands to really serve one another and carry one another's burdens in the weeks to come. These things are not at odds. To say I'm going to be, be someone who is serious about praying for my brothers and sisters is not saying I'm going to be serious about not helping them when things come up. Those things should always go hand in hand. Don't let one crowd out the other. Maybe one other thought to say is I think there's, there's wisdom in what James is saying about praying for one another in that I think for a lot of us, the way that we have learned to pray most powerfully is with people. So you want to learn to pray. You want to learn this habit of like actually bringing everything to the Lord, praying you know, without ceasing, praying continually. Learn to pray with others. Learn to hear the way they pray. They'll pray for things that wouldn't have occurred to you. Oh, you, you can pray for that. You can pray like that. You can pray this simply. You can pray, you know, whatever. So there is something deeply instructive about praying with one another that just forms us as people who pray, as prayers. So, James concludes this little section on prayer, and this is right towards the end of the book. He, he, he says, he concludes with a note about the power of prayer. At the end of verse 16, he says, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And he gives an example. Elijah, the prophet Elijah from the Old Testament, was a man with a nature like ours. He's saying Elijah was not a superhero. Elijah was not a super believer. Elijah was just like you and like me. Just a person. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. This is a story from 2 Kings. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. And that's the end of our section. He just concludes with a note that like, yes, I'm telling you to pray, and I want you to believe in your heart of hearts, as difficult as it might be, especially now in the 21st century in the West, to believe that prayer is actually powerful. He wants to undergird all this by saying like, there is a raw power here that we often don't experience because we don't expect it. There was a man, just a man, just a dude who prayed, and it didn't rain for three years. That is the power of prayer. So often, often we don't pray because we don't believe that God is going to do anything in response to it. And James would say, how dare you? How dare you? We're meant to understand that prayer is powerful. That does not mean that every prayer will be answered. Going back to our, our, the idea of even prayers for healing, tragically, you know, we all know people. We've been praying fervently for, as far as we could tell, there's no lack of faith in us. And it doesn't go the way we want. 
The tragedy comes at the end. And, and the reality is that, that has happened for virtually every, you know, besides, <laughs> you know, people who are just carried up the chariot to heaven. Every person who's ever lived, at some point, the prayer, like the efficaciousness of prayer has run out and we've all died. Every person has died. James knows that. Jesus knew that. Like, that's okay. So we have, to, we have to hold these things in balance. Yes, Lord does not answer every prayer. Sometimes, you know, for reasons we don't understand, his will is to go another direction. And yet, the command remains. Pray. Pray about everything. Pray with faith. And pray believing that the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And that is a, a, a tension in the scriptures that Christian, that's not new to us. It's been there since the beginning. But nonetheless, we have to continue to live into it. And may we not believe that prayer is weak, ineffectual, that it doesn't work, that God isn't listening. Prayer is powerful. So, to conclude, I hope it's clear that all of this has to be understood in light of the grace of Jesus. We don't get to, you know, our confession is nothing if it's not rooted in the forgiveness of Jesus. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. The second person of the Trinity came, entered the human story, suffered alongside us, lived as a genuine, real human. He lived in a real body. He taught for a number of years. He performed miracles. But at the end of the day, what he came to do was to die for us in our place. He came to put an end to the idea that we had to make repeated and continual sacrifice, that every year we had to come and participate in the system. No, he said, once and for all, I am, the, I am the true and better high priest. I am the true and better sacrifice. And he died. But he was raised. He was raised to new life. He appeared to many. And he ascended to the right hand of the Father where he reigns now. And he says, whoever believes in me should have eternal life. Our confession doesn't add one drop to what he's already accomplished. Our fervent prayer doesn't add one drop to what he's already accomplished. We get to sit confident, if you have trusted Christ, that all these promises are for you. You've been forgiven once and for all. You've been saved once and for all. You've been given a new hope once and for all. None of these things can be taken from you. No one can be snatched out of God the Father's hand, Jesus said. But yet we have these gifts. You want to experience more in this broken, struggling world, a little bit more of that grace, a little bit more of that forgiveness, a little bit more of that power, and pray and confess and, and cultivate these things in a, in, a, in a family, a local family, in the body of Christ, and won't you, won't, you will be shocked at how powerfully these deep spiritual truths, these once-for-all truths, actually get embodied in your day-to-day. -day. How much you're reminded how much something that seems like a, just an abstract, distant theological concept that, yeah, you can take it or leave it some days, but yeah, yeah I believe that, but whatever, becomes like, like the air you breathe. How much it becomes deeply comforting and personal and real. How much it spurs you on in moments of doubt. That's what he has for us. These two commands confess to one another and pray for one another are not to save us, but they are to give us a kind of spiritual power that is just there for the taking, I think. 
that we, off, that we sadly just say, huh? not really interested in that. That seems too hard. That seems too costly. So Door of Hope Northeast, may we take it. May we take it. We take it wisely. But may we take it passionately. May we take it fervently. And trust that if we become the kind of church who genuinely does confess to one another and pray for one another, I just don't think we can imagine what he might do with that. So, that's the call. Now we have to figure out how to live it out. For now, let's pray.